Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post, Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell. I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, Scott Adams, creator of the comic strip Dilbert, uh, has been canceled following an ill-conceived online rant in which he suggested... Uh, that uh, white people should move away from black people following a poll in which percentage of black people said that they disagreed with the statement, it's okay to be white. Uh, 53% of black respondents agreed with this oddly inflammatory question. Um, 21% were not sure. That means that roughly one in four of the respondents uh, disagreed with the statement that it's, again, okay to be white. Um, this, uh, this in turn, this 24% or so, uh, led Adams to suggest that the best solution is, you know, voluntary segregation. Uh, at least that's how I read the suggestion um, that white people should, quote, get the hell away from black people, end quote. I don't know about you guys, but I generally find that it's smart to avoid coming off as a neo-segregationist in my writing and speaking videos, etc. Um, the response was fast and furious. Adams' strip dropped him from, like... Uh, it was dropped from basically every newspaper. His publisher of books dropped him. His book agent dropped him. And he's now going to have to find a new way to make money, probably, if I had to guess, via a substack of some sort. Feels like kind of a natural progression uh, from what we've seen from the Dilbert guy uh, since the Trump era. Um, the question for the class, then, is this. Does this constitute what we might generally refer to as, quote, cancel culture, end quote, right? And this is the question that some have snidely asked as a means of insinuating that cancel culture is not real, it doesn't exist. If you're okay with Adams losing his livelihood, you must be, you must admit that this phenomenon that you have championed, you people out there, you cancel culture, you anti-cancel culture warriors is a sham um, or some such. And no, 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 comes to reply, the Adams situation is different. He has made an obvious transgression against a long-held norm and reasonable people are reasonably disgusted by it. Ergo, it's not cancel culture, it's just, you know, uh, for lack of a better phrase, to use a, a popular term that, that people seem to like on the internet, uh, fucking around and finding out. Um, the argument here is a semantic one, but it's of some interest because I do think there's a useful idea at the core that we need to wrestle with here, and it's this. Uh, when we talk about cancel culture, what we're talking about, right, is not whether is 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 basically whether or not a person deserved the consequences they suffered for whatever it is they did. In some cases, it's pretty obvious, right? Like your Justine Sacco type situation. You remember her? She's the sad case. She made the she made an AIDS joke before boarding a flight, and by the time the plane landed, she had been fired and relegated to the ash heap of society. Obviously bad. Cancel culture run amok, right? Then you've got something like the Michael Richards case, right, where he exploded during a stand-up set and deployed the N-word a bunch of times against a heckler. Um, since then, he's had trouble finding work, and I don't think anyone is really surprised as to why. The trickier questions come in the middle ground, where norms are being settled and where commercial clout is still uh, in some question. And this is why Dave Chappelle is routinely a flashpoint, right? He keeps getting in trouble for talking about a contentious area, which is uh, trans rights. Since I mean, the New York Times is arguing about it with their contributors. This is like a thing that people are still hashing out. Um, and he is also basically untouchable, at least for the time being, thanks to his talent, the fact that he's the biggest draw in stand-up, and the fact that Netflix is headed by a comedy junkie who simply isn't going to uh, get rid of him. Um, again, the questions here are of consequence and resilience. Um, and I think it's generally bad 
to, quote, make someone famous, end quote, right? By highlighting the misdeeds of a non-public individual, pulling out a camera while somebody's having their worst day um, and destroying their life in a matter of seconds, uh, even in, like, pretty grotesque situations. I Like, I don't know, man. I, like... That's that's usually not a great thing. If you're already famous, however, if you're using your platform, you have to be aware that the camera is on you at virtually all times, and you've always got to be primed for a fall. Um, if I can uh, bastardize Uncle Ben Parker's most famous line, um, with great visibility comes great responsibility. I think that is kind of the key here. Uh, Alyssa, is this a distinction without a difference, or are we are we actually working through an important point here as we kind of figure out what our new social norms are? Um, hmm. It's sort of weird to use Scott Adams as an example in some ways, right? Because he's someone who has been, has made, had sort of this second act as an internet provocateur and, you know, was clearly, I don't know that he would... It, I think watching from the outside, it felt like he was looking for the line and then stepped over it, quite clearly. I wouldn't say stumbled over it. Um, <laughs> somebody, and, I saw somebody on Twitter describe this as suicide by cop, and that feels about right. <laughs> yeah. Wait, no, no, suicide um, by, by Twitter mob, right? I mean, either way. Yeah. Uh, except, like, I'm not even sure the Twitter mob had to pull the trigger at this point, right? I mean, it's just... I mean, I feel like if... (sighs) I don't think there's anyone who defends this or think it's it's a great idea. You would think that you would be wrong. Uh, Reasonable humans. There, there are people okay. on on Twitter dot com right now who are arguing that Scott Adams is getting a, a rough, an unfair shake. That he was saying reasonable things about this poll, and uh, that it is this is he has been unconscionably canceled. Um, I'm also just very curious about the survey methodology of this poll, which you know just it seems like the kind of thing that might have uh, might be worth asking some questions about. Look, I think that part of what is challenging about these debates is that. They're adjudicated by like a couple of intersecting sliding scales, right? The relative fame of the person, the extent to which the um, subject in question is contested, and um, you know, sort of the nature of the remark or action. And so, I find it hard to find this sort of particularly controversial, or even like to a certain extent, I think it's just hilarious that we're still talking about the Dilbert guy, right? Did you guys read Dilbert growing up? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Dilbert. Dilbert, funny strip. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you know oh, this. Like pretty funny. Corporate culture sucks. I mean, it was a, it yeah, was sort of a, a daily office space style joke, right? It was it was just Mike Judge's office space, yeah. but like more focused on engineers, uh, a, a little less yeah. sharp, and it's kind of overall social critique. And especially now that we can see office space kind of it, it's in the context of Judge's career and realize yeah. how smart it was at the time. But it was just like, uh, man, managers they're pretty dumb. Yes, exactly. And I mean, it's also just funny to look back at as like, that sort of corporate culture has to a certain extent become a historical artifact, right? It's like, why all the kids watch The Office obsessively? They're like, that seems kind of weird, like it, but also like it might have been fun. Um, So the fact that we're still talking about the Dilbert guy is, is pretty funny. I don't think it's I don't think it's a distinction without a difference. I just think that any sort of 
social adjudication process that works with this many sliding scales is always going to be fairly unsatisfying to people because it's possible to quibble with, you know, where you place the offense on, you know, it's like on the X and Y and whatever other axes it's possible to place this on. And so, you know, I think that, look, I think that adjudicating these questions is difficult when the community is constituted of of everyone, right? I mean, it's much easier to have social norms in smaller groups. And the internet has made it so that everyone's social group is whoever wants to participate or gawk at a particular community. And so I would, I really broadly hope we live in a world where most people can be like, well, if you want to self-segregate, like go buy yourself some land somewhere, but you know, that's not going to be a popular idea. But because the community is everyone, we end up having debates that are, you know, sort of, they're just, they're insane. They're not useful. Um, But I think the fact that Scott Adams is suffering some consequences for beliefs that are broadly, really, I mean, broadly among normal humans, just considered things you don't say out loud, um, and hopefully don't think, does not strike me as terribly controversial. Yeah, I mean, Peter, this is, Alyssa raises a very good point here, that that is, community used to mean one thing, right? It, you, when we when we had, let's look back at film censorship, right? When we had community censorship boards that would like, look at films and say, this movie is not appropriate for the audience of Atlanta, Georgia, um, as opposed to the censorship boards of Chicago or Los Angeles. Everyone was making different cuts. Now, this is not necessarily a good way to uh, adjudicate what movies should be shown or how they should be shown. But it was at least this idea that you had distinct communities where people had different norms and different uh, standards, and we could we could kind of hash things out region to region. That is just not the case anymore, right? I mean, like, on, on Twitter, if you are on, on the Internet more broadly, on social media more broadly, if you have transgressed wildly against any group, you are kind of transgressing against all of the groups at once. Sure. I mean, if Scott Adams had merely said this to his group of I hate black people, you know, his I hate black people book club, uh, we probably wouldn't be hearing about this. On the other hand, if we'd found out that he had an I hate black people book club, they would probably end up being the same thing. Uh, that It's true that um, the Internet has flattened the possibility of people maintaining kind of multiple identities and uh, in different social contexts. Anything you put on on the Internet is available to anyone else. I just don't think that that's... Actually, I'm not sure that that's super relevant in this case, because it seems to me that the argument about cancel culture here is that the the people who are saying, well, cancel culture isn't real, are saying that because because offenses exist on a spectrum, because anybody can and like maybe I should let, let me see if I can summarize this a little better. They're saying that because there is a line that we all agree or almost everyone agrees, maybe not some people on the internet, but because most people agree there is, in fact, a line that you can step over that you can be fired from, that it, that, that just shows that it, we're, we all agree that this is, that it's fine to fire people for stuff they say. It's just a, an argument about where the line is, and I think that's really wrong. Just because there is a spectrum in which some ideas are obviously on the wrong side and some are obviously not, and then it's hard to find the line, the fact that doesn't change the fact that in some cases it is a bad idea to let people go because of 
because they have expressed ideas that are difficult or controversial. So I, I think that the test here is sort of threefold. One is the famousness of the person. You already raised this, right? Somebody with a much bigger platform who's already in the public domain is a person who is obvi obviously has some more responsibility, not legally speaking, but culturally, right? Like you just, if you have a million followers on Twitter or if you have a television show, then that's different than if you're like an insurance salesman with 500 followers who is not, who doesn't think of themselves as speaking to, you know, as, as speaking to the masses on a regular basis. Um, that brings me to the second thing, which is, I think, the nature of the person's job, right? And so uh, uh, I think it's uh, you know, uh, the, the folks at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, which used to be Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, have focused on cancel culture on campus in part for a reason, um, partially because that's their organization, but because professors, researchers, academics, and journalists, I think, all, in fact, have an obligation to some extent to deal in controversial and difficult ideas in a way that frankly, like a Twitter provocateur who writes a funny cartoon about office management, draws one, I guess, draws and writes, creates authors. Um, I guess he still creates, does that. Pens. Right? Like, yes. in a way that, like, that's, his job is not necessarily to interrogate the deep and difficult truths about, uh, I don't know, race in America or whatever. Now, on the other hand, he is somebody who is a cultural commentator, right? That is part of his job, and you should factor that in. But it's a somewhat different circumstance than, say, the, um, I, I think, you know, a tenured faculty member. Um, and then the other thing is the obviousness of the offense here. And this goes back to that line and that spectrum that I was talking about. And in many ways, it's what Alyssa said, too. I think there's a big difference in somebody getting get losing their losing their job or losing something having some sort of major cultural or social consequence that is akin to losing their job for something that maybe 30 or 40% of the country actually thinks even if it's not necessarily a a, a commonly expressed position on say opinion pages or in humanities departments um, and i think also that if if it was common to express this opinion uh, out even out loud uh, even quite publicly say 10 years ago that's difference than if it's something that that like nobody in power who is like we have all kind of there has been a stable agreement for many decades that this is uh, that this is an offensive idea and so the 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 like that that makes a difference here because this is in some ways like the cancel culture debate here is moot cat rosenfield who's a contributor to reason and a friend like tweeted i i think actually the thing that i think is clearest and and uh, that i agree with most here which is that asking if the adams incident is cancel culture is beside the point because what he did was like running across an open field in the middle of an electrical storm while hauling a giant giant metal pole whether what happened to him as a is was something that he deserved. It was totally predictable. He, you have yeah. to have known yeah. that exactly yeah. this was going to happen, and that is when, and that is, I think, the big distinction is that lots of people who this these sorts of things happen to, you wouldn't necessarily they wouldn't necessarily have known in part because of their sort of. Uh, because that's not the professional milieu in which they live. And even professionals might have said, well, I guess this, it, this could, could sort of go either way. We don't exactly know how this sort of thing is going to be treated. And when you don't know and when people don't necessarily have an obvious responsibility to know, then you probably shouldn't lose your job for that. This was obvious. He yeah. absolutely yeah. had to know. And if he didn't, if he really didn't, if he was that naive and that innocent and that unclear about the about the way the world works, then why are we listening to him about anything? Yeah. 
I I also think this is a great illustration of one of the more unusual paths to self-radicalization that can happen on social media. I mean, I think that when people talk about self-radicalization, they normally think about like someone sitting down to watch YouTube and like six hours later flying off to join ISIS because the algorithm has fed them into some sort of crazy pathway. But I, I think that a sort of lesser acknowledged path is the extent to which people uh, respond to bad incentives to their own content, right? And Adams clearly, I think, was someone who got on Twitter, started expressing views that were not, you know, reflective of his, um, you know, his, the comic strip that made him famous and presumably fairly well off, and sort of kept going and, you know, blew up not, you know, like a bus full of tourists in Provence, but himself, right? And (laughs) I you know social media is just not real good for a lot of us which is not to say that Adams is blameless or sort of a victim of the algorithm um but that he is a good example of why it's useful for all of us to check in periodically and be like do I like what my use of this thing is doing to me um and you know sort of speaking of to return to the point that I was making about sort of communities and community norms I it's one of the reasons that I haven't sort of rushed to find a Twitter alternative as a, you know, sort of lifeboat if the service goes down, because I actually don't know that I want to replicate my addiction to Twitter if the ship sinks. And I I think if social media goes down in the, you know, the sort of mainstream sense of it, I probably won't look for an alternative because, you know, I don't I don't necessarily love how I I don't love my brain on social media. And um, I think Scott Adams is one of, like, one of the lessons to take away from this is not necessarily about the sort of cancel culture or the adjudication of norms, but, you know, do I like the way that I behave on this service and the incentives it feeds me and what it does to my brain? Um, And if not, should I be spending my time somewhere else? I mean, I think that's a great, I think that's a very, very good point. And, you know, it's one of the reasons I kind of like, uh, you know, where where I work now, uh, which has a smaller, more self-selected group of uh, listeners and readers and is a little more uh, temperamentally not crazy, um, as opposed to Twitter as a whole, which is an insane place. Um uh okay. Uh I'm glad I'm glad Peter brought up that Kat Rosenfeld tweet because I was gonna do the same thing. Cause it's it is this this is what it comes down to, right? Is that like uh, he he did the dumbest possible thing he could do. Absent like showing up on a webcast wearing like an actual clan hood. I like I just don't know what else he, he could have done that would have been worse for him. So uh I don't know. Again, you 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 mess around, you find out. All right. Uh, all right. So what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-troversy? Uh, not what Scott Adams did, but to describe his self-immolation as, quote, unquote, cancel culture. Peter. Ah, that's a non-troversy. Alyssa. It's a non-troversy. The term doesn't matter in this context. It's probably... It's probably a non-troversy, though. I think it matters more than either of you two seem to think. And as host, I get to, to force topics onto both of you. So cancel me if you want to cancel anyone for this. All right. Uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode this Friday, uh, where we are going to be talking about some of our favorite TV and movie detectives. Uh, speaking of which, on to the main event, Poker Face. 
Streaming now on Peacock. The, that's that's a streaming channel. Lots of people have it, apparently. Peacock. Uh, the new series starring Natasha Lyonne, created by Ryan Johnson, is a critical darling uh, and one of the few original hits on the beleaguered streaming network. Uh, one reason for Poker Face's success, it is charmingly old-fashioned. The setup is pretty simple. Uh, Lyonne plays Charlie. She's a one-time poker player who couldn't lose because she has this one neat trick. Uh, she could always tell when someone is lying. As the series begins, she's forced to go into hiding uh, because she finds out that her boss at, at the casino she works at, who's played by Adrian Brody, had her best friend killed. Uh, now, a fixer for the casino, who's played by Benjamin Bratt, is chasing her across the country, wants to get revenge for the uh, father of the um, deceased Adrian Brody, who jumps out of a tower at the end of the first episode. Spoiler alert, sorry. Uh, every week... Charlie shows up in a new town where she takes some menial work to get some quick cash before moving on again. Uh, while there is a kind of loose overarching sense of urgency thanks to her extra legal predicament there's nothing really connecting the stories each week she shows up someplace new every week she solves a murder trouble really seems to follow her it's uh if i if i were her i'd be trying to figure out what is what is going on with my life um but you know the way it's set up is really interesting we see the murder happen and then she kind of figures out who did it um this isn't a whodunit show it's a how catch them right think columbo a crime happens we watch as charlie figures out what the deal is um and it's weirdly compelling given that in theory this format should destroy rather than heighten stakes and tension uh but it's great it's great in large part because the cast is so great every episode again kind of like columbo the guest stars come uh, pretty quickly uh every episode has a has a new fun person to see chloe sevigny one week, Tim Meadows the next. Uh, in the most recent episode that was this Thursday, Nick Nolte and Luis Guzman are uh, are both in it. Fantastic. Love to see them. But Leon is uh, just amazing in the in the show. She is delivering an incredibly funny, uh, defiantly memorable performance each and every week. Uh, and I remain that the show, I remain convinced, I am like positive of this on some level, uh, that the show was initially called Bullshit. Um, as this is what uh, Charlie says every time she catches someone in a lie, it's like a reflex. It's almost automatic. Just something that pops out without her being able uh, to stop it. She's not aware of it almost. Um, and the best thing about performance, uh, the best thing about her performance to my mind is when she actually uh, is able to swallow that. When she's able to like kind of know that somebody is lying and she's trying to get her marks to keep lying. To like keep getting them to say things that aren't true. To give away the game. Her eyes get a little wider. You can see the wheels turning inside her head. It's really just a very nice performance, all in all. Um, one last thing in the show's favor, the runtime of 44 minutes for most of the episodes after the first two uh, or so is just about perfect. Um, the old ways were better. The old ways were better. Look, I'm enjoying The Last of Us just fine, but it's got that HBO hour feel to it. You know, it's you really feel the clock ticking away. Not so with Poker Face. Uh, Peter, are you getting a kick out of Poker Face? I am enjoying it. This is it. It's just good, solid, uh, sort of not quite distraction television, but keep you company television um, in a way that I often don't appreciate. But this this show manages a balance of being just having just enough texture and depth to each episode that I want to keep watching. Um, but also not like so much complexity and sort of narrative uh, kind of sprawl that that like um, I I feel like I I really have to just like watch the next at one or I'm really like it's it feels 
and I mean this in a in a as a compliment. It doesn't feel like as much of a commitment. And often these days when I get to episode two or three of a show, uh, you know, one of these kind of eight or ten episode, like probably going to be three or five season kind of like sprawling narrative epic things. I'm like, do I really want to stick with this to see how it ends and just sort of like figure out all the where all of all of these threads? This show has a little bit of a thread that is pulling pulling it along, but it is not built around the idea that you have to stick with the whole thing in order it in order to enjoy it. Most of these episodes can be enjoyed by somebody who has never seen an episode before. And if you don't totally understand why Benjamin Bratt's showing up to chase her for a scene, eh, it's fine. It's just actually, it's fine. Like, it's four minutes of a 44 minute episode. Um, the performances are really wonderful and they're a big part of what makes this show work. Uh, but since you already singled them out, I will talk about um, two other aspects. One is the way this show is shot. And so that is the way that this is least throwbacky. This show is not shot like a classic, um, you know, network TV murder mystery. It has a kind of a grit to it, uh, a kind of a, a digital video, actually, sort of uh, look to some of the, the the way the light works, and you see some digital grain um, if, in in the the way it's shot. And I really like the way that this is shot. It's much more it's more cinematic. In some ways, it almost feels like a, a sort of a 16 millimeter kind of expensive indie film from, you know, from about 2004 or so or 1996. I don't know. In that phase where like six, where like there was a type of filmmaker who was pretty good, but honestly, they couldn't afford a 35 millimeter print like film because in, if you know anything about film developing and purchases, they're much more expensive. And so you just had a different sort of lo-fi, low light look to some of those productions and you get that in Poker Face. Now, obviously it's not quite as sort of janky as some of those 16 mill millimeters were, but like it has some of that same vibe and I, I enjoy it. The other thing that's really great about here is the texture of the places. And this show does such a great job, even in a 45 minute format, of building a little world and then letting our detective knock around in that world and like see what makes that world tick. And the fact, so I've only seen four episodes so far, but the fact that each episode is giving us a completely different little community and a completely different little self-contained world that that seems that seems real and rich enough that it doesn't just seem to have been entirely constructed for the purposes of delivering a mystery revelation even though honestly kind of is in every t in every circumstance it just there's there's a sort of there's a it's not quite realistic like it's not like oh man now I'm learning about America and like I, I and yet you're learning a little bit about America you learn a little bit about like weird like has been musical culture in episode four and you learn a little bit about brisket cooks and like Texas barbecue culture in episode three you learn a little bit about like sort of off uh off I don't know what we want to call it but like off strip gambling in the you know in the the first episode. In a way that's just like actually attuned to the details of the places that I, I'm really enjoying. And it, it's just a reminder that you don't need 10 episodes, 10 full hours to explore and build out a world and build out interesting characters who maybe even like some of these characters I wouldn't mind coming back and seeing again uh, because their introductions and sort of their their arcs are are so nicely defined even if they are quickly sketched and i i think that that is the actual lost art here is to build a whole world and a whole set of characters and character relationships in the space of a single episode and that's enough and we just haven't seen that done this well for a very long time
No, totally. I I, I just want to highlight one more thing. You mentioned uh, how the how the show looks. It really does look like little short movies. It helps that the first two were directed by Ryan yes. Johnson. I think he's directing another a couple more through the season. But the thing is shot like a movie. I mean, like the second episode takes place in. Essentially, in a strip of uh, desert road where there are two little, sh- or three little shops on on each side of it, but it feels huge and expansive because they they shoot so much of it with the horizon in mind. You get to see you get to see long stretches of road. There's a wistful quality to it, but there's also a sense of big open space um, and simultaneously kind of tight claust- the claustrophobic nature of that sort of living. The 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 fact that you, despite all this space around. You're still confined to these three, two, three, four little spaces in your town. Um, it's really, it's really a just a wonderfully. And shot they're building a new place show. each episode, which also makes it more cinematic because it doesn't feel like, oh, we're just back on the bridge of the Enterprise yet again. I've seen this set a, a dozen times before. Yeah. It doesn't feel like we're back in the offices of the Law and Order, you know, prosecutors, whatever. I've seen it's this not set the SVU yet again. House. Right? Yeah. It's a totally yeah. different setup and location every single time, which makes each one feel like this clever little self-contained contained short story. Uh, Alyssa, one thing uh, I I really like about the show is the way the uh, the the mysteries kind of unfold, and it's not it's not about solving who committed the murder. It's about trying to figure out through Charlie's eyes who is going to lie and how are they going to lie and what are they going to lie about. It's really more about people and what they value and how they try to hide the truth from themselves and other people more than it is the murders themselves. Yeah, and um, I enjoy the extent to which that sort of interacts with the show's sense of sort of skewed Americana, which is probably my favorite thing about it, right? I mean, I I have to say, I did not particularly like the pilot of this, um, and it did not really click with me until the second episode. I could actually do without the whole sort of frame narrative, um, although I like Benjamin Bratt. I think he's a good actor. Um, but, um, you know, once you start getting sort of out into these places a little bit more, you know, you see these motivations for murder as kind of non-didactic arguments about, um, you know, sort of place and people, right? So the first murderer is this sort of mediocre guy who is, or sorry, the second murderer starting this episode, second episode, um, is this kind of mediocre guy who is, you know, angry about his own inability to get out of town and kill someone who he perceives, who he resents for being sort of charming and entrepreneurial and optimistic in a way that he can't be. And, you know, again, you what you have in that little sketch is not like, this is not really a story about like white guy grievance, right? You know, it's the murderer's uncle is like, a, you know, sort of kind, perceptive, you know, um, like, on incredibly honest um, garage owner, you have, you know, a black veteran working at this sandwich shop, you have um, what appear to be, I think, like, Southeast Asian immigrants running a convenience store, you have, you know, sort of uh, this, you know, sort of multiracial, interesting community. And the like, the thing that is distinguishing for the murderer is, you know, that sort of lack of optimism, that sense of resentment, that sort of closed offness to um, sort of wider experience or the possibility of the work that actually goes into self-improvement. And so, you know, the episode doesn't end up being 
kind of didactic. It just it feels very character driven, even at the same time that you have, you know, Johnson like remaking our sense of a truck stop with like a socially awkward lesbian Asian trucker, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing that another show might make the mistake of kind of hammering. It's like, look what we're doing for representation. And, you know, Johnson just kind of treats it as color. Um, In the same way, like you have this great joke in the third episode about how the, you know, racist conservative talk show, talk radio show that Charlie's dog is addicted to is actually like voice acting work by a bored black theater major (laughs) in Texas, right? Like that's, you know, I mean, it's the like the joke ends up being about how that kind of content is often you know effectively like a commercial put on right that's something that we're seeing play out in dominion lawsuits uh dominion voting systems lawsuit against fox news where you have all of these legal documents that reveal that this stuff is like essentially a performance and people are very aware that they're doing it for ratings right i mean as rupert murdoch put it it's not red or blue it's green and so you know, you the show is it kind of is sly and you know it's it's got an ease to it that I think works really well. Um, that makes it sort of substantive and politically interesting, very individual, and not sort of tense or too eager about the argument it's sort of building about America. Um, and I find that really impressive. So I have a question for you guys, uh, which is just about yeah. the, the the kind of underlying detective format of this. The thing that bugs me at, at this point, four episodes in, is that Natasha Leone's character keeps keeps finding murders and keeps then like stopping, going out of her way, despite herself being chased and like in, uh, you know, being under uh, duress to some extent to to solve them. And I understand that that's so built into the format, but it always just like slightly bugs me a little bit when there's a when there's a show built around a detective and the detective doesn't have a sort of job-based responsibility or something like pushing them some sort of clear motivation to do the detective work. Just a little like I I'm enjoying it's, this to be clear. It's called it's called innate human decency, Peter. You should look into it. Yeah. You want to she wants to help the world. What do you think about that? Try to try to No. No, I I totally I mean, look, this is this is the 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 like 1970s of it, right? This is like a thing happens, you got to solve the thing. That's that's the show. But it's also very character driven again. Right? I mean, right, you know, from the first scene we see with Charlie, she's, you know, talking to this neighbor of hers being like, "I don't want to have to bail you out." She you know, she gets involved cuz she's worried about her friend. She, you know, she is someone who clearly connects to people very quickly. And um, despite her sort of ostensible lack of connection, is someone who is setting down these little roots all the time. She doesn't stay stay to see them developed, but she kind of can't help herself. And that's part of what's very appealing about the character. Uh, All right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Poker Face? Peter. Thumbs up. Alyssa. Thumbs up. It's like a gourmet bag of chips. Thumbs up. It's, it's it's literally the only reason I would suggest subscribing to Peacock. It's uh, it is the the like best the best argument for the network. Um, we'll see if that's going to be enough for them. 
Uh, assuming you're not, of course, a big fan of the WWE, since it's you get all the WWE there, too. I don't know. Uh, all right, that's it for this week's show. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 